This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Julian Jameson. The Yosemite by John Muir. Chapter 4, Part B. Earthquake Storms The avalanche taluses, leaning against the walls at intervals of a mile or two, are among the most striking and interesting of the secondary features of the valley. They are from about three to five hundred feet high, made up of huge, angular, well-preserved, unshifting boulders, and instead of being slowly weathered from the cliffs, like ordinary taluses, they were all formed suddenly and simultaneously by a great earthquake that occurred at least three centuries ago. And though thus hurled into existence in a few seconds or minutes, they are the least changeable of all the Sierra soil beds. Excepting those which were launched directly into the channels of swift rivers, scarcely one of their wedged and interlacing boulders has moved since the day of their creation and though mostly made up of huge blocks of granite, many of them from ten to fifty feet cube, weighing thousands of tons with only a few small chips, trees and shrubs make out to live and thrive on them, and even delicate herbaceous plants, draperia, colomia, zauchneria, etc., soothing and coloring their wild rugged slopes with gardens and groves. I was long in doubt on some points concerning the origin of those taluses. Plainly enough they were derived from the cliffs above them, because they are of the size of scars on the wall, the rough angular surface of which contrasts with the rounded, glaciated, unfractured parts. It was plain, too, that instead of being made up of material slowly and gradually weathered from the cliffs, like ordinary taluses, almost every one of them had been formed suddenly, in a single avalanche, and had not been increased in size during the last three or four centuries, for trees three or four hundred years old are growing on them, some standing at the top, close to the wall, without a bruise or broken branch, showing that scarcely a single boulder had ever fallen among them. Furthermore, all these taluses throughout the range seemed by the trees and lichens growing on them to be of the same age. All the phenomena thus pointed straight to a grand ancient earthquake. But for years I left the question open, and went on from canyon to canyon, observing again and again, measuring the heights of taluses throughout the range on both flanks, and the variations in the angles of their surface slopes, studying the way their boulders had been assorted and related and brought to rest, and their correspondence in size with the cleavage joints of the cliffs from which they were derived cautious about making up my mind. But at last all doubt as to their formation vanished. At half-past two o'clock of a moonlit morning in March I was awakened by a tremendous earthquake, and though I had never before enjoyed a storm of this sort, the strange, thrilling motion could not be mistaken, and I ran out of my cabin, both glad and frightened, shouting, A noble earthquake! A noble earthquake! feeling sure I was going to learn something. The shocks were so violent and varied, and succeeded one another so closely, that I had to balance myself carefully in walking, as if on the deck of a ship among waves, and it seemed impossible that the high cliffs of the valley could escape being shattered. 
In particular, I feared that the sheer-fronted, sentinel rock, towering above my cabin, would be shaken down, and I took shelter back of a large yellow pine, hoping that it might protect me from at least the smaller outbounding boulders. For a minute or two the shocks became more and more violent, flashing horizontal thrusts, mixed with a few twists and battering, explosive, upheaving jolts, as if nature were wrecking her Yosemite temple and getting ready to build a still better one. I was now convinced, before a single boulder had fallen, that earthquakes were the talismakers, and positive proof soon came. It was a calm, moonlit night, and no sound was heard for the first minute or so, save low, muffled, underground, bubbling rumblings, and the whispering and rustling of the agitated trees, as if nature were holding her breath. Then, suddenly, out of the strange silence and strange motion, there came a tremendous roar. The Eagle Rock on the south wall, about a half a mile up the valley, gave way, and I saw it falling in thousands of the great boulders I had so long been studying, pouring to the valley floor in a free curve, luminous from friction, making a terribly sublime spectacle, an arc of glowing, passionate fire, fifteen hundred feet span, as true in form and as serene in beauty as a rainbow in the midst of the stupendous, roaring rock-storm. The sound was so tremendously deep and broad and earnest, the whole earth, like a living creature, seemed to have at last found a voice, and to be calling to her sister planets. In trying to tell something of the size of this awful sound, it seems to me that if all the thunder, of all the storms I had ever heard, were condensed into one roar, it would not equal this rock roar at the birth of a mountain talus. Think, then, of the roar that arose to heaven at the simultaneous birth of all the thousands of ancient canyon taluses throughout the length and breadth of the range. The first severe shocks were soon over, and eager to examine the newborn talus, I ran up the valley in the moonlight, and climbed upon it before the huge blocks, after their fiery flight, had come to complete rest. They were slowly settling into their places, chafing, grating against one another, groaning and whispering. But no motion was visible, except in a stream of small fragments pattering down the face of the cliff. A cloud of dust particles, lighted by the moon, floated out across the whole breadth of the valley, forming a ceiling that lasted until after sunrise, and the air was filled with the odor of crushed Douglas spruces from a grove that had been mowed down and mashed like weeds. After the ground began to calm, I ran across the meadow to the river to see in what direction it was flowing, and was glad to find that down the valley was still down. Its waters were muddy from portions of its banks having given way but it was flowing around its curves and over its ripples and shallows with ordinary tones and gestures. The mud would soon be cleared away, and the raw slips on the banks would be the only visible record of the shaking it suffered. The upper Yosemite Fall, glowing white in the moonlight, seemed to know nothing of the earthquake, manifesting no change in form or voice, as far as I could see or hear. After a second startling shock, about half-past three o'clock, the ground continued to tremble gently, 
and smooth, hollow, rumbling sounds, not always distinguishable from the rounded, bumping, explosive tones of the falls, came from deep in the mountains in a northern direction. The few Indians fled from their huts to the middle of the valley, fearing that angry spirits were trying to kill them. And, as I afterward learned, most of the Yosemite tribe, who were spending the winter at their village on Bull Creek, forty miles away, were so terrified that they ran into the river and washed themselves, getting themselves clean enough to say their prayers, I suppose, or to die. I asked Dick, one of the Indians with whom I was acquainted, what made the ground shake and jump so much? He only shook his head and said, No good, no good, and looked appealingly to me to give him hope that his life was to be spared. In the morning I found the few white settlers assembled in front of the old Hutchings Hotel, comparing notes and meditating flight to the lowlands, seemingly as sorely frightened as the Indians. Shortly after sunrise, a low, blunt, muffled rumbling, like distant thunder, was followed by another series of shocks, which, though not nearly so severe as the first, made the cliffs and domes tremble like jelly, and the big pines and oaks thrill and swish and wave their branches with startling effect. Then the talkers were suddenly hushed, and the solemnity on their faces was sublime. One in particular of these winter neighbors, a somewhat speculative thinker with whom I had often conversed, was a firm believer in the cataclysmic origin of the valley, and I now jokingly remarked that his wild tumble-down-and-engulfment hypothesis might soon be proved, since these underground rumblings and shakings might be the forerunners of another Yosemite-making cataclysm, which would perhaps double the depth of the valley by swallowing the floor leaving the ends of the roads and trails dangling three or four thousand feet in the air. Just then came the third series of shocks, and it was fine to see how awfully silent and solemn he became. His belief in the existence of a mysterious abyss, into which the suspended floor of the valley and all the domes and battlements of the walls might at any moment go roaring down, mightily troubled him. To diminish his fears, and laugh him into something like reasonable faith, I said, Come, cheer up, smile a little, and clap your hands, now that kind Mother Earth is trotting us on her knee to amuse us and make us good. But the well-meant joke seemed irreverent, and utterly failed, as if only prayerful terror could rightly belong to the wild beauty-making business. Even after all the heavier shocks were over, I could do nothing to reassure him. On the contrary, he handed me the keys of his little store to keep, saying that with a companion of like mind he was going to the lowlands to stay until the fate of poor, trembling Yosemite was settled. In vain I rallied them on their fears, calling attention to the strength of the granite walls of our valley home, the very best and solidest masonry in the world and less likely to collapse and sink than the sedimentary lowlands to which they were looking for safety, and saying that in any case they sometime would have to die, and so grand a burial was not to be slighted. But they were too seriously panic-stricken to get comfort from anything I could say. During the third severe shock, the trees were so violently shaken that the birds flew out with frightened cries. In particular, I noticed two robins flying in terror from a leafless oak, 
the branches of which swished and quivered as if struck by a heavy battering-ram. Exceedingly interesting were the flashing and quivering of the elastic needles of the pines in the sunlight, and the waving up and down of the branches, while the trunks stood rigid. There was no swaying, waving, or swirling as in windstorms, but quick, quivering jerks, and at times the heavy tasseled branches moved as if they had all been pressed down against the trunk and suddenly let go, to spring up and vibrate until they came to rest again. Only the owls seemed to be undisturbed. Before the rumbling echoes had died away, a hollow-voiced owl began to hoot in philosophical tranquillity from near the edge of the new talus, as if nothing extraordinary had occurred. Although, perhaps, he was curious to know what all the noise was about. His hoot-to-hoot-to-hoo might have meant, What's a the steer, Kimmer? It was long before the valley found perfect rest. The rocks trembled more or less every day for over two months, and I kept a bucket of water on my table to learn what I could of the movements. The blunt thunder in the depths of the mountains was usually followed by sudden jarring, horizontal thrusts from the northward, often succeeded by twisting, up-jolting movements. More than a month after the first great shock, when I was standing on a fallen tree up the valley near Lamon's winter cabin, I heard a distinct bubbling thunder from the direction of Tanaya Canyon. Carlo, a large, intelligent St. Bernard dog standing beside me, seemed greatly astonished, and looked intently in that direction with mouth open, and uttered a low woof, as if saying, What's that? He must have known that it was not thunder, though like it. The air was perfectly still, not the faintest breath of wind perceptible and a fine, mellow, sunny hush pervaded everything, in the midst of which came that subterranean thunder. Then, while we gazed and listened, came the corresponding shocks, distinct as if some mighty hand had shaken the ground. After the sharp horizontal jars died away, they were followed by a gentle rocking and undulating of the ground, so distinct that Carlo looked at the log on which he was standing to see who was shaking it. It was the season of flooded meadows, and the pools about me, calm as sheets of glass, were suddenly thrown into low, ruffling waves. Judging by its effects, this Yosemite, or Inyo, earthquake, as it is sometimes called, was gentle as compared with the one that gave rise to the grand talus system of the range, and did so much for the canyon scenery. Nature, usually so deliberate in her operations, then created, as we have seen, a new set of features, simply by giving the mountains a shake, changing not only the high peaks and cliffs, but the streams. As soon as these rock avalanches fell, the streams began to sing new songs, for in many places thousands of boulders were hurled into their channels, roughening and half-damming them compelling the waters to surge and roar in rapids, where before they had glided smoothly. Some of the streams were completely dammed, driftwood, leaves, etc., gradually filling the interstices between the boulders, thus giving rise to lakes and level reaches, and these again, after being gradually filled in, were changed to meadows, through which the streams are now silently meandering. 
while at the same time some of the taluses took the places of old meadows and groves. Thus rough places were made smooth, and smooth places rough. But, on the whole, by what at first sight seemed pure confounded confusion and ruin, the landscapes were enriched. For gradually every talus was covered with groves and gardens, and made a finely proportioned and ornamental base for the cliffs. In this work of beauty every boulder is prepared and measured and put in its place more thoughtfully than are the stones of temples. If for a moment you are inclined to regard these taluses as mere draggled, chaotic dumps, climb to the top of one of them, and run down without any haggling, puttering hesitation, boldly jumping from boulder to boulder with even speed. You will then find your feet playing a tune, and quickly discover the music and poetry of these magnificent rock piles, a fine lesson. And all nature's wildness tells the same story, the shocks and outbursts of earthquakes, volcanoes, geysers, roaring, thundering waves and floods, the silent uprush of sap in plants, storms of every sort, each and all are the orderly, beauty-making love-beats of nature's heart. End of chapter 4